All right, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10. We're going to be covering Hosea chapter 7 through 10. You're going to need a Bible on you this morning. If you forgot your Bible, there are people here who have a Bible, love to get it in your hands. We're going to be kind of jumping through chapters 7 to 10, so you're going to want to copy God's Word in your hands so you can follow along. If you forgot your Bible, just throw your hand up. We'd love to get this Bible to you. If you don't own a Bible, take this as your gift, as our gift to you. Um, but grab a copy of God's Word. Go to Hosea chapter 10. Here's the thing. is I was studying... Um, seven to 10 over the last little while. And it's, it's, it's interesting that I love that as a church, we, we kind of work our way through books of the Bible. Because here's the thing. If you read through Hosea, and especially you get to these, these middle chapters we're in right now, it is not chapters that I would typically, my personality as your pastor, I'd say, man, I can't wait to preach Hosea seven to 10. Right? It, it's, it's, it's horribly hard to read. It's, it's, it's dark and it's heavy. I mean, if, if it was up to me, like I'd be like, hey, Philippians again this Sunday? Yeah, let's talk about joy, right? That's kind of how I'm wired. I'd love that. But I love that, that God's word, that he's, he's so faithful to the proclamation of his word that, that we're just gonna stay where, where he's leading us. And so my personality doesn't get to lead this. So, so be thankful to the Lord as we bust open some hard texts this morning. And we see a picture of, of, of a culture, of a society that, that's in a very dark place. Now, my, my oldest daughter, I don't, I don't know if you've got, got kids and they're kind of wired in this. My oldest daughter loves dystopian stories and movies, right? Like Hunger Games kind of stuff, right? Just loves that kind of stuff. Anything that has a dystopian twist to it, I mean, she's all over. She loves this idea of, of what happens when everything goes wrong, right? And you kind of get that picture. I kind of dig it too. It's kind of neat to think about how, how would I survive Walking Dead, right? How could I do that? You ever think, no, maybe just guys think this way, right? I'm thinking, would I eat my cat, right? That's what I'm wondering. Would, if things got rough, would I eat the cat? I would. I would eat them before we ran out of food, right? Like that's, <laughs> here's, here's the thing about dystopian tales. Here's the thing about the, about the stories when you read about that. Usually there's this picture of, of bleakness. And, and, and you see it, right, that, that buildings are knocked down, the, the services are no longer available, and it's just this dark, difficult, horrible time. They even When you watch movies, they even kind of shoot them in a different way where it looks darker. It's miserable. And yet, here's the thing. What's worse than that kind of a dystopian culture, that kind of a nightmare, here's what's worse. What's worse is when everything looks great, but inside it's rotting. That's when you, you buy the house that looks amazing, you move in, and, and after you've paid for the thing, you've moved in, you then find out later that there's mold all inside the walls. It's, it's being the person that looks so, so healthy and athletic, they run all the time, they look, and, and yet they don't even know that inside they have a terminal illness. In, in Israel, it's, it's like our time. When we're reading through Hosea, you've got to understand that, that culturally, things are amazing for them. Everything was good. It looked great. If you were to walk in at this time, you'd be like, man, they have got it made. The economy is booming. The Raptors are in the finals. Are you kidding me? Right? Like, it is just a good time in, in culture. Sorry about the leaves. You can't, you can't take care of everything. <laughs> That's the rot underneath I'm talking about, right? 
Here's the thing. So Israel, everything looks good, but they're, they're dead on the inside and they're lulled. Here's the problem with, the, with looking good on the outside. You can be lulled into this place by the prosperity around you to not look deeper. To not look at, hey, what is meaning all about? What about eternity? And, and, and in a culture like ours where life can be so good, you can be hit in, in deep in your soul with a question of eternity and immediately you can just go, let's just turn on Netflix. Well, let's just go shopping. Let's just go out on the lake. And as you build this perfect life with a perfect house, you can, you can experience culture and friends and good food and good drink in, in beautiful places with beautiful people. And you can actually miss out on the reality that those things aren't answering the deeper questions that your soul is asking. And here's the thing, as a church, we have a passion, a desire to be on mission, that, that we wanna see our towns transformed by the gospel. And so, so Hosea 7 to 10, as hard as they can be, it's so good for us. So, so we've got open to chapter 10. We're going to look at the end here. Then we're going to go back and look at how did they get to this place. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. God says this, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. It says it's, life is good for Israel. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. So he's not talking about good altars here. He's talking about as he got greater, he started to worship the things around him. This is their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Here's what God's saying. Hey, Israel, as you increased in prosperity, as you got all the things, everything you could want, you had it, but God says you're hollow on the inside. And as a result of this, Assyria was gonna come in and, and just knock them out. That's what he says. He'll break down their altars, destroy their pillars. They're about to be taken out by a, a neighboring country. Why? Because they have no foundation. The, the more they were blessed the more they ran to the blessings instead of to God. The more life was good and comfortable, the, the more they forgot about the weightier things of eternity, of the relationship with God, of his glory, of the mission they're called to, and the shallower and shallower they became. And the more you hope in your stuff, the more you worship that stuff. And you begin to put a significance on, on the things around you, on the horizontal thinking, this is going to be my hope. This is my significance. So the question that I want us to ask today, how did they get to this place? We, we need to hear this warning. How, how did they get to a place where they, they looked really good on the outside, but they were empty on the inside? In fact, let, let me catch you up. If you're just joining us for the first time, the book of Hosea is a book about a prophet named Hosea who God says, I want you to go marry Gomer, this woman Gomer, and Gomer will be unfaithful to you. You keep welping, welcoming her back as your wife. She'll be so unfaithful to you. She'll run after so many other lovers. She'll enter herself into prostitution. And God says, I want you to do this to be a living example of how of how Israel, my people, have walked away from me. So here's Israel. Now, now picture with that in mind, Israel living the high life, all the benefits while they're pursuing other lovers. 
And God, their husband, is saying, here's more gifts for you. Here's, and they're taking the gift saying, thanks, using it for themselves, using it to actually make better a life of pursuing other lovers. How would you get to that place? How would you get to be so dead to the things of the Lord? Two points for us this morning. Here's the first. Rather than loving the world, we fall in love with the world. Rather than loving the world, we fall in love with the world. We're called by Christ to love the world. We're called by God. You go out into the world and, and, and preach the gospel, care for the broken, to love the world, but we're not to be in love with the world. As Christians, we're called strangers in a strange land. We're, we're, we're called exiles. We're sojourners. I mean, this isn't our home. We're called to live a life on mission because we're living for a future home. Well, we're following Christ. We want to bring the hope of the gospel to this place, but we want to do it not just talking about it. We want to live out the gospel in our lives. And, and, and that's hard. That's hard because to live like Jesus in our culture doesn't always win you some great points. You'll stand out in your school if you live for Jesus. You'll stand out at work. You'll stand out if you're part of a family that, that doesn't follow Jesus. You, you'll stand out in our culture, and it's not easy being the ones who love God but aren't in love with the world. Ones who, who pour out love for the world but aren't in love with the world. Those who, who say, my citizenship actually isn't here. My citizenship is in heaven. Now, 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 in order to do this, God's called us to be missionaries, called us to be those who transform our culture. But so often we choose a couple other ways to deal with the, the tension of being standing out as Christ followers. One way we do it, if, if you're not from a place, you, you can operate like a tourist. You never engage with the world at all. Right? It's like if you, if you go to another country and you never leave the resort. You just go and you don't experience the, the culture at all. You just stay at the resort the whole time. If you ever do leave the resort, you're immediately looking for a McDonald's because you don't want to eat their food, right? That's, that's the hardcore tourist way of life. And, and so as Christians, although we're called to be in the world, to, to pursue the world with the gospel, we can live like tourists. And what do we do? We huddle up here all the time. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back. We, we, we don't want to go out into the world. We don't want to actually get to know our neighbors. We want to have people in our homes. We don't want to be in those dark, difficult places. So we huddle up, hide out. Listen, that's not biblical at all. We're called to love the world. That's not a good option. Here's the other option you can do, and this is what Israel did. Not completely avoid, but you assimilate. You actually just jump right in and you become a citizen. You fall in love with the world. And, and a lot of Christians do this. They, they, they take this option. They, they live as though this is all there is and this is it. This is my home. And, and so we worry about our reputation here and, and don't care about our, our, our position with the Lord. We worry about what we might miss out on here. We, we worry about who we know here. Listen, that's not a biblical way to live out our faith. We're called to be salt and light into the world. We're called to be on mission. And I get it, there are so many times that doing that, that living for Christ, it is so difficult. I mean, it's, it's easier to just hide out together. It's easier like, like Israel to, to assimilate and, and just say, forget it, I'm joining in. I don't wanna stand out at all. And we so fall in love with the world around us, we actually lose the distinction of the gospel. 
We actually start to drink the Kool-Aid of our culture without any discernment. And, and, and we, we stop worrying about things that God says, no, this is not a part of who I am, who I've called you to be. In fact, flip, flip back to Hosea chapter 7. You see this is where Israel's going. Verse 8 says this. Ephraim, which, is, which was the largest tribe in Israel, so it's a name given to Israel a lot through Hosea. So when you, when you see Ephraim, think Israel. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Mixes himself. Ephraim is like a cake not turned. That's a weird analogy. We'll get back to that. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you look at Israel and you look at the culture around them, they've just become so part of culture, there's nothing about them that's different. And, and rather than looking at culture and saying, hey, hey, what part of culture is good? We can celebrate this. We can join in on this. And what part of culture is something that go, that's outside of, of God's plan? They stopped doing that. They just absorbed everything. They just became like their culture. And listen, it's so much easier to do that. You won't look weird if you do that, Right? but eventually you won't look anything like Jesus either. And here's the thing, we, we, can, we can look at this, we can look at what happened to Israel, we can, we can kind of look back and become armchair spiritual critics, right? We go, man, I, I can't believe Israel did that. Why would they ever do that? Man, that's so lame. Why would they make that move? We, we can look at church movements in our time and we can look at what they're doing as they mix together and go, man, you're, you're mixing Jesus with a whole bunch of pop psychology, make yourself feel good kind of junk. And we, we shake our heads at the smiley preachers that say, you can have your best life now, Right? We go, man, I can't believe you would mix Jesus with that, where, where Jesus is reduced to this, hey, just look deep inside for the good in you, and, and he's your self-help to have the greatest life you can have, the best you you can be, the dream life of a, of a, of a great spouse, a great car, nice friends, a big house. I mean, that's kind of the, the thing. We can look at that and go, man, that, that's junk. That's mixing culture with Jesus. The point of following Jesus is not having an easy life. The point of following Jesus is seeing that, that, that this life is not all there is. It's not bringing life into your heart and saying, man, I love this, this culture. I want this. It's, it's when you see that, that God's grace poured out on you through the cross of Christ, that there's redemption and freedom, that, that, that now you get to bear a cross to suffer in this world because you know that the suffering of this world can't compare to the eternal weight of glory that's coming and, and you can, man, man, I want to live my life for that. So we can look at Israel, we can look at other movements, and we can think, it's nuts, man. Don't mix Jesus up with all this other junk. What's harder, though, is to say, wait a minute, where am I in this story? It's harder to say, man, man what about me? What, what do I mix? What, where am I in love with the world instead of just loving the world? Where am I? Where, where is harvest absorbing culture instead of transforming culture? Where are there things that I'm inviting from culture that I should be rejecting? Where, where am I placing myself as an authority over God? Where I see so clearly in Scripture, man, God calls us to this, but it's so out of step with our culture, man, I would rather grab a hold of culture instead. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be weird. 
So we say, hey, Jesus, how about this? How about I, I, I love you? How about I say I'm a follower of yours, but I still pursue all this stuff too? Hey, Jesus, let's say we're, we're together, but, but, but I, like in a covenant relationship, except I'm going to also have a bunch of other people that I go to, things that I go to, other loves. Or, or, or we say, Jesus, how about this? Jesus, I'll stay with you, but you gotta kind of clean yourself up a little bit. If, if, if you could change, because man, man, you're pretty weird. You stand out odd. You say things that are uncomfortable. You, you do things that make people uncomfortable. So, so what about this? What about if you would just change things up a little bit? That, that would be great. And, and we make our own Jesus. And, and we read through scripture, we find things that don't line up with our loves, our desires, our values, things we wanna pursue. So we just say, well, we'll just drop that part. That part probably isn't true. And like Gomer, we say, look, I know I'm in this covenant relationship, but, but I'd like to date as many other people as I can. Listen, Jesus doesn't want a joint custody relationship with you and all your gods. He, he's not like, okay, how, how about this church? How about, how about we, you, you guys can, you can worship sex on Fridays and Saturdays. I get Sunday, then Mondays and Tuesdays, you, you can worship materialism. Now, Jesus says, I want all of you. I, I want your whole heart. Historians say that in the early church, the first century, that Christians were looked at as weird. They were so out of step with culture. In that time, here's where they stood out. Historians say this, they stood out because they were this. They were so generous with their money and stingy with sex. That's, that's, what, that's what the people of their time would say about the church. Being this, man, they just give to anybody who's in need. But, but, but a sexual relationship, it's just between husband and wife. And culture, I thought that was so weird. And that's in first century, probably not now, right? Do you get how that, that's weird now? That when, when someone says, I, I want to remain pure, I, I want to pursue what God has, man, you, stand so, you stand out so much. God says, I gave you all these gifts, all these things of culture. God gives us as good gifts, all stuff that we can enjoy and, and use. And, and, and yet, yet, what do we do? We take them, we make them the ultimate. I mean, you can think in our culture, you can think through some of these gifts God's given us, they become ultimate. They're like, this is everything, man. Fame, sex, money. You say, man, man that's my identity. That is all me. I, I, can't give, I can't give that up because that's actually my savior. So Jesus, you either go or you're cool with this. And we mix this together. When we do this, what, what happens? Right here in the text, it tells us what happens when we, when we mix in our idols and we call it Christianity. We grab a hold of Jesus and the world and what we're like, it says in verse eight, we're like a cake not turned. Odd metaphor. What's he mean? Let, let me bring that metaphor into 2019 for us. It's like a pizza pocket that you put in the microwave. You ever done this? You put it in the microwave and for some reason it doesn't cook right. Whether the table doesn't turn or whether it's just a bad pizza pocket, you pull it out, you bite into it and part of it is like it's been on the surface of the sun, right? And you just burn your mouth while other parts of it are still frozen in that gross, cold, hard tomato sauce, right? You ever had that happen? That, that, that's what he's saying here. So when you try to mix the two together, when you say you love Jesus, but you love the world, you, you're, like, you're like this, this idea of, man, man you're, you're, you're kind of overcooked in one way and undercooked in another way. In Revelation, the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter three, Jesus gives a similar illustration. He says this in Revelation 3, 15 to 18. He says, I know your deeds, 
that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Israel thought they were so amazing. And God's saying, well, you're Gomer. You're lost. Jesus says, don't be lukewarm in your love for me. Don't be half in and half out. Don't don't be a Christian who's Christian by name only, but there's there's no difference, there's no change, there's no conviction, there's no following. Jesus, man, that kind of lukewarmness, I spit it out. A life that's so affected by the world, where it's hard to see any difference in your life, where you've mixed culture with Christianity so much that you're this half-frozen, half-on-fire pizza pocket. In the Gospels, Jesus had his strongest, toughest words for religious people who outwardly tried to look good, but inwardly, they were not. They were lukewarm. They were a a half-turned cake. Here it is. It's, It's when I disagree with God's word and I win the argument. That's a cake not turned. It's it's when I'm afraid of standing out, when I I fear people more than I fear the Lord, it's a cake unturned. It's when I don't want to look different, it's a cake unturned. Listen, Jesus saved you. He saved you completely. And he's called you, if he saved you, he's called you into a new life and a a faith-filled life led by his spirit, filled and empowered by his spirit to to live a life that's that's radically different, that's so considered dangerous by our monotonous, boring culture. He's creating a new heart in you. And when we grab a hold of our idols, when we grab a hold of other things other than Christ, when we think we're strong, we stand up, like like it said in Revelation, like the children of Israel here in Hosea, when we stand up and we're like, no, 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 no. I think I'm good. I I actually don't think I need Jesus. I I think like Gomer, I can be married to, to God, but not, I don't have to be fully committed to him. I've heard it said this way before. I may have used this illustration as well. It's, it's kind of like this. When you're a kid, you play the game Simon Says, right? And you don't do anything unless Simon Says, right? Simon Says, stand up, you stand up. But if you say, sit down, you don't do it. You wait for Simon Says. And if Simon Says to do it, you do it. If Simon Says, don't do it, you don't do it. Then we come into church and we play Jesus Says, but it's a different kind of game. When Jesus says to do something, we just have to be deeply moved by it. We just have to know what he said. We just have to have a a heart to hear it, but we don't actually need to do it when Jesus says do it, right? Listen, when we see that we we were Gomer before Christ stepped in, that we were lost, naked, rebellious, used, broken, messed up, and God loved you and pursued you and transformed you, man, when you understand the gospel in its total reality that you have been rescued, God rescued you so that you are no longer Gomer. God God now speaks a new word over you. And he says, you're mine. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. You're, You're my possession now. You're my treasure. And so the question is this. When the world comes at you and the world says, no, you're mine. And Jesus says, no, no, you're mine. Who do you follow? You can't obey both. 
One's leading in a very different direction than the other. And you come to that point of, man, the world's calling me this way. And the world says that I'm the world's. And Jesus, no, I purchased you. I bought you. I transformed you. Who do you follow? Are we actually living like Jesus? As a church, does, does Muskoka and Perry sound, do they look around and say, man, I just see these, these Christians, I see them everywhere, man, they're just loving everyone. They give way more than they get. It's almost like they're on some sort of a mission to actually risk everything to do what God's word says. Or, or are we like Israel? Like a cake not turned. Look at, look at verse nine. Maybe sometimes we're like this. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. Here's what, here's what the, God's saying in here. Here's what Hosea is saying. It's saying this, that, that when we mix the world in with Christianity, when we don't stand up, when we forget the gospel, the call we have in our lives, we are like the 40-year-old the dude at the pickup game, Right? Here's what I mean by that. Listen, I'm 47. I get it. I'm, I'm calling myself out here, okay? I do not have the strength I had when I was 20. I don't have the wisdom yet of a 60-year-old. It's a terrible place to be, okay? But it's, it's, it's like that, that 40-something who's going to the pickup game, and they think they're still 20. You know this dude, right? Right? They're trying to run as fast. They're trying to, trying to skate as hard. They're trying to, trying to do the things they did when they were younger until they blow their knee out, Right? And you either look ridiculous trying to do it, or you get injured doing it. When we mix the world with Jesus, we think, you know what, this is better. If, if I just lessen Jesus' call here, it's going to be better. We'll actually be stronger. If we grab these things that God rejects, we say, no, 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 no. We could reach more people if we just tone Jesus down a little bit. We'll be stronger if we do it this way. This text saying, no, no, you're actually blind to the fact that you're way weaker. That when you do that, you, you no longer are the 20-year-old athlete you, you've lost the benefit of the gospel. You, you see this every time the church tries to, tries to change, tries to absorb culture and hide Jesus, thinking we're going to reach more people when we do it. During the Enlightenment, the church started to look at, at, at Scripture, and as more science is being discovered and people are becoming more scientific in their thinking, the church thought, you know what, we got to eliminate the miracles because there's no way anybody will believe in this stuff. So, so to be stronger, let's take the miraculous, let's take the mystical, let's take the spiritual out, and we'll reach so many more people. The result of it right now, I mean, if you go into any, many liberal churches today, you'll walk into a very dead, empty room. Why? Because we, we robbed the glory of God and thought this will be so much better. Rational people would never believe that Jesus rose from the dead physically, so let's tell them he rose in your heart. That is an illustration of God triumphing over justice. Thinking it would be stronger when churches adopting that are becoming weaker and dying we try to tone down God. We try to pull out parts of God's word that aren't in step with culture and we become the half-cooked pizza pocket. We become the 40-year-old with a blown-out knee. So here's what I want us to do. Listen, we need to understand that embracing the world does not make us stronger. 
I had somebody call our church uh, a couple years ago. Um, and they said, hey man, what is it about your church? How come all the young people are coming to your church? What are you doing differently? And I just said this, and, and mostly because I, I, I'm not a, a church growth guru at all. So I just said, I don't know. We pray a lot, and I just read God's word, and, and we just preach it pretty straight. And I, I said this, I said, I, I think young people are looking for a mission to die for. And he said, he goes, that can't be it. I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, that can't be it. There's gotta be something. Is it, is it, are you doing something that's attracting and here's the cool thing. He came out, I said, why don't you just come out? And then he came out, he introduced himself uh, uh, and, and, and sat in the back and then left without talking. I think he's looking for some secret sauce. Here, listen, listen. When we embrace culture, that does not make us stronger. And so I'm just gonna keep preaching the word as it is, all right? And as a church, we'll be out of step with culture. Listen, there's coming a time very quickly where we're not just gonna be out of step with culture. We're, we're slowly coming to a place in our culture where we're gonna be hated in our culture. That when you read about the early Christians, man, a coming is a time for us like that, I believe. But listen, listen. If we're really following Jesus, then, then just like the first century, we may be hated by culture, but if we truly live like Jesus... While they were hated in the first century, man, they just followed Jesus. The, the way they did their money, the way they did friendships, the way they did business, man, they loved the world so well in the first century. They took care of broken people. They took care of, of people who, who were in need. They lived lives like Jesus. And listen, they eventually turned the whole world upside down. Let's not mix together. Let's understand where the power is. The power is not being in love with the world. The power is being in love with our Savior. And out of that flows a love for the world. Here's secondly, really quickly. Amen. Amen. Secondly, a shorter point as we wrap this up. Secondly is this. How do we get to this place of empty inside? We, we pursue temporary comfort rather than eternal hope when we pursue temporary comfort rather than eternal hope. I mean, God calls them out here in chapter seven, still verse 14. He says, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves, they rebel against me. He says that their hearts are driven for grain and wine, he says. Now you gotta understand the, the context of Hosea. He's not saying, uh, talking about a sin of gluttony or a sin of drunkenness here. He's saying, no, they're going after things other than me. You've traded the eternal hope and glory for something temporal. You pursue and love the horizontal. You, you put your hope in things and people and, and image and control and power and comfort and approval. And he's saying, you're trading this relationship with him, him, you're, you're trading it, the gospel, the only thing that actually can give you hope and security, and you're trading it for a quick satisfaction. I'll be honest with you, even as I preach this, man, I see myself in this so clearly. It's so easy for me to aim my heart to look for my desires to be met in the horizontal, to, to look for identity in my family, in my job, to look for comfort and entertainment. I mean, it's so easy to do that. I mean, we live in Muskoka. I mean, there's so much beauty around here to occupy our hearts and our time and our attention. New restaurants open up. You're like, oh, it's good. It's so good. And, and that is good. I mean, it's so good to enjoy the gifts of God, to be outside, to enjoy what he's given, these amazing gifts. The problem is not the stuff that God gives us as gifts. The problem 
The way we end up like Hosea 10, being so shallow and hollow and dead on the insides, and we take those gifts that God gives and we say, these are my new God. These are what are gonna bring me hope. I can build my life on this. And we forget the gospel. We forget the announcement of good news. We forget that the gospel says this, the victory's already been won. The gospel's not advice to help you out to say, hey, here's how to have a, a really good life. Here's how to work hard. Here's how to make a good foundation underneath you. The gospel is this, that God steps in and says, you can't build that foundation under you. You need to trust in Christ alone. You need to surrender completely to, to him and, and to his way of working and recognize that his gifts don't bring eternal life. He brings it. And so God reaches into this, this frantic mess that we so often find ourselves in where we're, we're trying to build this foundation under us. We're trying to pack as much stuff and think, man, this will hold me up. This will help me stand. And God steps into that and he goes, no, no, I have a foundation for you that will never crumble. You don't need to build. I, I built it for you. And he makes a way through the death of Jesus Christ in our place to give us this foundation of forgiveness and wholeness in him that we could never create on our own. He gives us the only foundation that can actually bear up the weight of our souls. If you've lived long enough, you've seen this, that everything else fails you. When you put your weight of your life on other things and those things fail, or you put your weight of your life on, on, on other people and those people fail you, or, or if they don't fail you, you putting your whole weight on them absolutely crushes them. And we're filled with anxiety, with emptiness, with grasping, with pride. I mean, it's so tiring to keep building these foundations. Listen, what really changes us is seeing that he's the better foundation. That God's more, more glorious than his stuff. That our hearts are drawn away from, from grasping at the world and our hearts are drawn to a greater affection, to a greater glory, to a better hope, to a foundation that's secure. Look at chapter eight. Chapter eight, verse four. Here, here's, here's what they get to. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Verse 14, it says this of chapter eight, verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces and Judah has multiplied fortified city. So I will send a fire on his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. They're building these foundations. They're saying, I'm putting my hope in people. I'm putting my hope in my stuff. And God's saying, listen, listen, you've replaced this communion, this relationship with me, this, this life of obedience and dependent on a living God, the one who brought you out of Egypt. And we've traded all of that for ourselves. I can build my own foundation. God's saying, listen, you're trying to build meaning. You're trying to build identity. You're trying to build hope with your own hands. And, and what you're really doing is you're taking these things in and, and you're making them your savior. You're actually living, some would call it, as a functional atheist. Well, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God, but, but you don't put your hope in him. It's saying with my mouth that I follow, I trust Jesus, but then I spend all my time trying to build my own foundation, trying to create my own salvation. And we're saying, God, I, I actually don't really need you. I actually am not gonna depend on you. What I'm saying in those moments when I go after those other things is saying, God, I actually don't trust you. 
So I don't need your grace. I don't need the work of your spirit. I'm going to depend on myself. What happens is you move from, from dependence on God, from being a place where you see, man, I so need this, and you move to prosperity. You move to a place of, I think I've got this. Israel went from being in a, a desperate place of saying, God, you're the only one who can get us out of bondage and slavery. And they go to this place of being comfortable and prosperous. They go from, I heard it said this way, they go from Rocky 1 to Rocky 3. If you've watched the Rocky movies, let me catch you up, all right? You need to, you need to follow these. These are good movies, all right? Rocky 1 is about, I'm poor, I'm desperate, I'm in need. He gets successful, Rocky 3. Rocky becomes overweight and lazy. That's what happens when we forget and he goes to try to fight and he loses. Why? Because he forgets, wait a minute, there's a desperate need that I've got. We go from this humble place of, of God, if you don't show up in my life, all of this is a train wreck. God shows up with blessing and then we all of a sudden take it and own it for ourselves and we get pretty confident. I think I could take it from here, God. And now Israel's relying on themselves to craft a, a life of meaning. And, and so listen, we need to ask ourselves, am I really desperate for Jesus? Where do I run for hope? What does prayer and fasting look like in my life? Am I desperate to say, God, I need you? See, in their self-sufficiency, they start to think, I don't need anyone. I don't need God. I don't need people. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. You can see how self-sufficient they become. Verse three says, for now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord and a king. What would he do for us? Like we don't need anybody. I don't need God. I don't need other people around me. Now, now we would never say it out loud, but what we're saying is, man, I'm the king. I'm the one taking care of things. Israel had gone from this place where they were in such a, a sweet relationship with God where he loved them, he led them, he cared for them, he honored them. And now they're like, you know what, God? We don't need you anymore. And do, do you see how this is so us? And how often we push against the call of God. We, we do it with money, we do it with sex, we do it with relationships, we do it with church, we do it with our time and our effort. We're no longer saying, Lord, I need you. I need those around me. We start to huddle up. We, we no longer reach out to our neighbors when he's called us to serve and to give. And we forget that we've been bought with a price. We've been redeemed. We've been transformed and then sent out. You know, how often do I love myself more than I love Jesus? When you come to Christ, listen, listen, you give your life over to him and say, God, you're on the throne now. And yet how often? Every day I crawl back up on that throne to push Jesus off of it. That's the daily struggle we walk in. That's why, like I said last week, repentance happens early and often, day by day. We say, listen, listen I gotta get off this throne again. Jesus, you get back on. We surrender our lives to the King of Kings. It's coming to God's word and where Jesus and I disagree, I lose. The result of all of this in Israel absorbing culture because they didn't want conflict, they didn't want to be different, they, they didn't want to be peculiar and unique, they want to be just like the world, they didn't want to transform the world, and they replaced the grace of God for horizontal hopes, and it ends with them being empty, looking nice on the outside or rotted on the inside. 
as the worship team comes up this morning, as we end off by really reminding ourselves through worship about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's why we're doing that. One of my favorite stories in scripture is the, the time when, when Peter had, had denied Christ. Because he denied Christ, he just felt like, man, I'm, I'm done for. And, and, and he leaves, he goes back to fishing. He'd been, he'd been called by Jesus out of fishing to, to, to be a servant of his, to go out with the gospel. But he said, you know what? I failed too much. I've blown it. I'm going back fishing. He's in the boat fishing. And a voice calls out from shore, and it's Jesus. Have you caught anything? They're like, no. Have you tried throwing your nets on the other side? I can just imagine grub. They've been fishing all night. And they're probably, oh, whatever. Who's this guy on the shore? Tell us what to do. All right, we'll throw it over. Boom, the nets fill up. And, and right away, Peter's like, wait a minute. Because when Peter was called by Jesus, he did the exact same thing. The first time he called him. And now here he is again saying, hey, 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 that looks like, that's Jesus on the shore. This is what Jesus would do. So he jumps into the water. The other disciples rowing the boat in. He's like, forget, I'm not waiting for you guys to row. I'm swimming to shore as fast as he can to get where Jesus is. In that moment, Jesus is waiting for him with a fire and breakfast. I love that. I love that. Jesus wasn't waiting on the shore like this going, yeah, you better get here. Heard you denied me. No, he's waiting with grace. Why is he waiting for me? Because Peter is surrendering his life again, day by day, being renewed. So, so where do you find yourself this morning? Maybe you're like so in the boat of culture, like, man, I don't even know where, 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 where Jesus is anymore. I'm telling you, see him and swim to him. Get where he is. Again, see his grace. Again, see that, that Christ gave his life for you. No longer then would you hedge your bets. Don't, don't hide out. Don't cling to what you think is safe. But you have an opportunity even right now to, again, to step out of the boat, to do things differently, to be transformed because you see, man, I was Gomer, but I've been transformed by Jesus. Life's different for me now. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, even now, I know that, God, even, even in a church service, God, we need to be reminded of your grace, reminded of the gospel. God, give an opportunity to repent, to turn, to, to say, I, I don't want to pursue the world anymore, man. I want to love the world as Jesus sends me into it. I want to be light and salt in the world, but I, I'm done with being in love with it. I'm done with holding on to the temporal. My hope needs to be in the eternal. So, so even in this moment, my prayer is this, God, would you, would you turn our hearts even now to see the glory of your grace, that you saved us, you transformed us, and you're transforming us day by day. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.